0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: This week on the podcast, hey, guess what? I have an extra special guest. Uh, Eric Balchunas is someone I've known from both the ETF industry and Bloomberg for, I don't know, a decade or two. Um, And we hang out in a lot of the same circles. Uh, There are few people in the world who know as much about ETFs, indexing, Vanguard, Jack Bogle. I mean, I could count him on one hand, the number of people who have his depth of knowledge in this space, uh, and that's why he's really a a fascinating character. Uh, You could tell when you listen to this conversation that it's two guys who know each other just BSing and schmoozing, Uh, but I find those to be some of the best conversations because... It, there's no pretense. There's no marketing. It's just people talking about things that genuinely interest them. And when I basically don't get to half my questions because we're just, what about this? Tell me about that. Hey, isn't this wrong? Or uh, it, it just leads to all sorts of fun and interesting places. Uh, I thought this was a fascinating conversation, and I think you will also. So if you are remotely interested in passive investing – ETFs, indexing, or Vanguard and Jack Bogle, you will find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. With no further ado, my interview of Eric Balchunas of Bloomberg Intelligence. He is the senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg News. He is also co-host of ETF IQ on Bloomberg Television, and he hosts a podcast called Trillions with Joel Weber, editor-in-chief of Business Week. He is the author of several books, most recently, The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. Eric Balchunas, welcome to Masters in Business.
3: It is a pleasure to be here, Barry. Always, it's always, like a home game for me. That, I just walked like 10 feet here.
2: Right. I texted you and said, come <laughs> down to five. Time to start. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the home field advantage and your career. You, you've been reporting on finance pretty much your entire career. What what led to an interest in money and markets?
3: Um, well, I was in I went to Rutgers and I was uh, wrote for the school paper, and uh, I decided to major in journalism and communications because I liked it. And um, but I was at the Cook College, which is the ag school. And mm-hmm. in order to graduate from Cook, you had to have at least a minor. That was related and i thought i took an uh, econ class and i kind of liked it so i minored in environmental economics that got me through cook because i was with with a bunch of biology people um and so i my i immediately applied to bloomberg (laughs) but But i I got rejected yeah no no it wasn't i got rejected i only got in my third time um i because obviously i'm like journalism economics i'm in rutgers Bloomberg makes perfect sense, and they were hiring, but I just wasn't qualified. Balloonist,
2: hard pass. Yeah, hard so pass. So where did you
3: start? <laughs> I went to the Institutional Investor magazine oh, sure. newsletter division.
2: Their their website is a regular in my yeah. morning reading list. It, yeah, it's
3: always solid. Yeah, I mean the name turned me off at, at coming out of college. I was like, Institutional Investor just sounds so boring. Like, mm. who would ever read this? But money was institutions. pretty. Institutions. Yeah, institutions, uh, which came in handy later in my when I wrote my first book, but. Uh, I covered um, derivatives at first, and then I covered mutual funds. So I worked for a newsletter called Fund Action and did that for a little while. And then went. Um, I met a guy named Duff Ferguson at Align Bernstein. He was the PR guy. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, man, I want to go behind the keyhole. And so I went and took a job in PR because I kind of like this guy's whole deal. And so I got a job in PR at a, um, a crisis communication firm named Abernathy McGregor and got to work with several clients. Uh, and you know, took them to Bloomberg, took them to Reuters, took them mm-hmm. to there. And uh, I came to Bloomberg, I was like, man, this place is different, right? Yeah. So I always had an yeah. eye on Bloomberg for my early career. And then um, in 99-ish, no, no, yeah, 99-ish, 2000, early 2000, I got headhunted. That's how good the economy was. You could be 25 and you'd get headhunted for like all these jobs. <laughs> and she comes and she goes, I've got two jobs that are really good. One is at Bear Stearns. <laughs> A lot of money. Doing PR. Right. And the other one is at Bloomberg. And I was like, Phew, it's an easy choice. So I basically put all my chips on Bloomberg uh, and interviewed here to have a job in PR. Went through many interviews. It took a while, but in I finally PR? got in. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So I started so, here wow. in public relations.
2: So, So first, the first question is, if you weren't rejected by Bloomberg right out of the gate when you were right out of school... Might you have ended up at Bear Stearns? Was Was yes. Bloomberg the one? Yeah, it's a
3: great point. We chase the things that recede from us. Yes. To quote the Tao of Steve. But having had like I had like three jobs, maybe four. I work I worked at a third party marketer for about six months, Ugh. where you had to call pensions Ugh. and try to pitch them on hedge funds. Cold call. Oh, it was really tough. All those jobs when I finally got to Bloomberg always helped me stay here because I know what is out there, at least to a degree. If this is my first job, I may have had such I uh, I don't right. know, curiosity, I, pr- I probably would have left. Uh, so maybe it's a blessing in disguise.
2: So you were covering derivatives in the 90s, but not the 2000s leading up to the 0809 crisis. No, I only covered them for a little while there. So you missed, I, I'm
3: hardly an expert.
2: You missed the fun <laughs> yeah, derivative I, uh, era. You, that's right.
3: That's right. I covered them when You it were was like, ah, I, I did that in the 90s. Who needs the, that? The, the idea was you just try to call these traders and just get them to give you information on why, what went up and down in the futures market. It was a really, I mean, honestly, very unglamorous manual labor type job. He, right. Journalists need journalists need to get a reason for everything. It's you can't just see the market went up or the futures. Just, what happened? And You need someone for Who, that. What, where, when, why? Yeah, which is so, what
2: makes financial news coverage either really good or really bad because some people must impose a narrative. When it's sometimes it's just random.
3: That was my first thought two months in my first job. I was like, I don't know if we, there, there's a reason for this. Maybe it went up like, I don't know, uh, half a point today. There, maybe it just, maybe it, there is no reason. There's no clear reason. It's okay. Can we just say that? And they're like, and he's like, no. <laughs> they hate that. No. You cannot say we don't know or who knows. <laughs> we, I think
2: we've talked about this. My favorite thing in the world to do on TV is they ask you a question and say, I, I have no idea. Well, what what about, uh, I don't know. Nobody does, but I'm telling you the truth. I don't know. The rest of them are lying to you when they answer, and people hate
3: that. I agree. I don't know is a underrated phrase and mindset, whether it's religion, politics. Sometimes you don't know. And I think Often, I don't know is a very Most big of the time. Yeah, and most people can relate because few of us are experts in anything or know anything absolutely. And so I'm a big fan of I don't know in general, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really play well in the media. All right, so let's get serious now.
2: You're the go to reporter for
3: ETFs and passive indexes. Well, hold on. And can I stop you? Sure. So, some people do think of me as a reporter, and I started my career that way, but I'm in research. So, what I do is I write notes that aren't, I don't report on something. I'm more, get, our team gives takes on things. So, your, your title is technically senior ETF, ETF analyst. analyst. But when I
2: think of everybody in the media, who covers ETFs, passive investing, Vanguard, et cetera, BlackRock, et cetera, you're the first name that pops into Oh, you have a question? You want to speak to a journalist in the ETF space? Get a hold of Eric.
3: So so,
2: so let's- Well, I I
3: would say, you know some of these guys who work for ESPN, who are like experts in the NBA? Sure. I kind of model myself- They're color commentary, not- Well, or they just get the latest news, like uh, uh, Woj for the NBA or Adam Schefter, uh, I believe that's his name, uh, for NFL. I'm I'm that for ETFs, and so there is an element of trying to get on top of the latest things. But more so, I just see research is having to get out there more. I think if you're in research, you sort of need to put on a pundit hat sometimes and have a reaction on Twitter quickly. Because if you wait and wait, then you're late to it. And I think it's good to just be um, at a little punditry. So I would understand why you would think that. Plus, I was a journalist, so I have maybe some vibes that are journalism. So let's call
2: you the go-to guy. We will call you the go-to reporter. Um, uh, How did
3: the expertise in ETFs and passive investing come about? Um, Remember the Fund Action Mm -hmm. newsletter I wrote for? So when I was at Bloomberg PR around 9-11, I had a near miss and I moved back to South Jersey. Uh, define near miss. Uh well um I was supposed to be in the top windows of the world that day. Really? Yeah. I, there by the way, a, there are uh,
2: thousands of I know. these
3: stories. I I've had I know and I, I don't I'm not look I, I sometimes people overindulge themselves in these stories and um but fate in, did intervene um but there is a badge. There was a conference up there. Waters technology um had a badge a, with your name on it. There's a badge up. with my name on it that was at wow. the top, of, isn't that crazy? What time did the event start? Oh, it started at like 7 in the morning. Oh, so, so you absolutely would have been there. Yeah, there were three people from this company who were there. No kidding. Yeah, sad. And one of them is actually my friend from South Jersey, knows him, and they still have, a, a, you know, I think, a walk for him every year. It's, you know, it, it really hit home, but I also was looking to take a step, like uh, I was looking to change gears in life anyway. Mm-hmm. I was about 27, so I moved back to South Jersey, and I transferred to the Princeton office of Bloomberg. And when you do that, um, I still think I'm the first person ever in the history of this company to go from PR to data. Because <laughs> right. that's all they do in Princeton is data and engineering. But I was like, well, I don't want to commute to New York every day from South Jersey, so I'll take a job here. So they looked at my background and said, why don't you go work for funds data? So I got to work where they make the terminal. It's like the Keebler Elves. So I, I've, I've seen how the terminal is made, all where all the data comes from. and they, right. I basically had to work on getting fund information from the prospectuses, this is before tech, technology was really that right. great. Put them into fields. And this then was that's a what, manual process. Yes. And we, we automated it as we went. We sure. were always looking to automate. And so when you pull up a Bloomberg and you type in like the Fidelity Magellan Fund and then you type DES, all that information there right. is really what we we did. And so I was doing that in 2000, 2000 or 2002, 2003, 4. And in 2006, I got a hand at ETFs. They're like, you work on ETFs now. And I was like, I had heard of them, but I, you know, was still And let me just jump in. So the spiders had been around at that
2: point in time, the S P five hundred spiders by State Street. They had been around Since ninety three. Yeah, a couple of oh, decades. Yeah. And other companies had moved into the space and I, I just was having this conversation with someone the other day. They said, Who are you who are you interviewing? Oh, Eric Belchunas. Oh. Uh and the the question they asked was uh, was Bloomberg late to ETFs? I'm like, I thought they were there pre-financial crisis.
3: They were fairly, they weren't the first one, but they certainly didn't lag. That's a great question. So Bloomberg covers everything. right? And if a ticker is on the exchange, it's on the terminal. So we had ETFs from day one. right? But did we care about them? Did we put a lot of resources into them? Not really. They were still small back then. And I think that's maybe part of my legacy, if there is one here, is to... I was, uh, in 2006, seven. I was like, oh my God, I was like kicking the tires on ETFs. And I'm like, these things are going to take over. They're too good. Right. The t- value is too strong. So I just was like, became, I'm like dove first into ETFs. And I went to Index Universe conferences, started listening to their podcast with your friend Dave Nadig, Matt Hogan. And I looked at some of the stuff, they, how they talked, the data they looked at, and it was very inspirational. I said, we have to cover things like index weighting methodology, the criteria, the rebounds. Like there's all these ETF-specific fields we have to get on. So part of what I did was to uh, make the DS page uh, one for ETFs that had all of fields that were pre- uh, prevalent for ETFs, because the time they were putting ETFs into mutual funds, and they're- You were a driver, you, yeah. uh, you helped separate yep. it, and that's why people think of you as the ETF guy. By the way, the folks you
2: mentioned, I group you in with them because when I befriended folks like David Nottig, I had no idea that this was the ETF mafia and these were (laughs) the people running, you know, really driving the the mindshare and the perception of ETFs both in the industry and amongst the investment community. And I'm like, oh, what do you guys do? Kind of, we're hanging out and having some fun. And it's like, yeah, oh, we mess around with ETFs. Oh, that, we own ETFs. Uh, we can hang with you. Not realizing, oh, no, no, you don't understand who these guys, Jim. And go down the list of people. Um, these are the folks that really drove the entire expansion of the ETF industry quietly in the 90s. But as you mentioned, in the 2000s, it was just starting to ramp up. So how did you drive this company into putting a greater emphasis on ETFs and treating them as distinct from mutual funds?
3: Yeah, I tried all kinds of ways, uh, which is – Sort of, I could relate to Bogle trying to sell index funds in the 70s and 80s when no one was really interested. Um, I think everybody has these plates in their life where they're trying to tell people about something and it just takes a long time to break through. So I would get, I would, I would uh, basically use my communication skills. I would talk to people internally. I would go to sales meetings. I would present, the chart I really like to show was people think of ETFs at the the time of having say like 2% market share of all funds. But I'm like, but they make up 20% of all equity trading. So I would show them the volume and be like, and we're a, a service that does a lot with trading. We should have 20% of the equity programmers, if you think about it. Sure. That, that people would nod their heads, but I would never get 20% of the equity programmers. But over, over time, we we made some headway. We started doing events. And honestly, I, I just really was like a one-man army for a little while. But then the assets started to come in. Um, and then someone like at a higher level would be told by somebody ETFs are big, and that would help a little. And ultimately, it was like a wave that just finally broke, and now we have a lot of resources into ETFs. But I also think that Bloomberg and what I would tell people back in the day is we might have been a little late to sort of ETFIs our DS pages and, mm-hmm. and give you some functions. But it was but, always on the terminal. But once you do that, that's just the frosting on the cake. You click on an ETF, then you got to look at the holdings. And you want to analyze one stock? You click on that. You could just keep clicking on a terminal. Right. Other services, you ha- your clicking had to stop somewhere. So I'm like, all the stuff they did here in the 80s and 90s to connect to the exchanges to get all the stocks and the bonds. We when the ETF came out, all we had to do was put some like you know sort of frosting on the cake. And it was but now your analysis could go anywhere, and so the terminal and the infrastructure there was really a huge tailwind for my efforts. So so let me ask you a question that'll tee up the rest of our
2: conversation. Um, you started in the ETF space in the mid 2000s, and you know, following the financial crisis, they exploded. Imagine, you know, just banging away at this for 40 years with some limited success, but mostly being looked at as that Jack Bogle guy in Pennsylvania. What what is this stuff? He's well, he's just hitting his head against the wall. That is just going nowhere. Could you could you picture decades of this with just moderate at best acceptance to the whole idea?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is part of the story. I, I couldn't believe the numbers. Here's two two examples of how long it took. It took Vanguard 25 years to get 10% market share in funds. 97 98% of Vanguard's assets came after Jack Bogle stepped down as CEO. Amazing. That's amazing. even it's amazing, right? So, he built a foundation largely in oblivion, right? Yeah. But once it got built, then it became the gradually then suddenly thing, but he toiled around a long time. Although he was a very loud prominent voice, but the assets really weren't there until right. mm, I would say the financial crisis of 2008 is when they really kicked in. But up until then they had less than a trillion, I believe, and uh you know, they were always out there. I remember when I covered for fund action in the in the 90s and late 90s, I would cover all the fund companies. I looked at Vanguard as maybe the fourth or fifth company. I was like, Fidelity, got to cover Fidelity, sure. T. Rowe, Leg Mason. Vanguard was like fourth or fifth. Now, when I think of the universe, it's like Vanguard, BlackRock, and then you Everybody can eat binoculars else. to see somebody else.
2: Right. That, that's amazing. And I appreciate the Hemingway reference. That's always, uh, that's always really interesting.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork.
2: You wrote this very insightful and what turned out to be influential column in 2016 called uh, The Vanguard Effect. Tell us, what is the Vanguard Effect?
3: Yeah, so the Vanguard Effect is, you know, Vanguard comes out, they're a mutually owned company, right? The investors, the funds own the company, the investors own the funds. That is really the heart of the matter here. Very different, more akin to an insurance company yes.
2: than a typical trade. Yeah, or
3: a nonprofit. It's not they're not exactly those things, but it's something like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's unique. And this is part of the story I was so fascinated with was why would someone set up a company where they deliberately turn over all the future profits to the to the people? It just it makes no sense. And so It's Marxist. It, it, it's crazy. And I asked everybody, I interviewed 50 people for this book. I asked them all that question. How come nobody has copied Vanguard structure? And the answer was all the same. Well, no incentive. <laughs> there's no incentive to no one. And as Jason Zweig said, no one goes to Wall Street to drive a Volvo. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, man, can I tell you that is the most one percent
2: thing I've ever heard from you? Because in normal middle class households, a Volvo is considered a higher end car. Sure,
3: but well, I guess, but it's also very accurate. But it's also Bogle worked. Hard if you are going to go to Wall Street and you are going to put in those hours, I think most people want a big payoff. So, and, I'm really going to put this much of myself and in intensity.
2: There. It's and more they got than that just fire hours. in the
3: belly thing. It's right. just the way the story goes on Wall Street. You make a ton of money, usually, there's some fall, you know, where uh maybe uh you get into fight with people like the, the Bill Gross story. I thought was probably more traditional Wall Street story, yes, the rise and the fall, right? Um, so it's unusual though to have that much work ethic. That much drive and say, yeah, I want all the investors to have the money. I, you I mean they got paid well, but he was never going to get Jeff Bezos rich or, you know, the Johnson family rich if he turned over the profits. Right. That decision was the biggest, I think, the single biggest decision in the in the last fifty years. Indexing is just the lucky byproduct of that decision. If indexing was expensive, it wouldn't really uh, catch hold. And I think it was Vanguard's mutual ownership structure that is the key ingredient as well as bogle's unique structure. So most of my book is exploring those two things. I think those two things were the created the explosion. And then when they were looking for something to apply this to, indexing was out there and they said let's do that. And that I think in in a weird way I think indexing got lucky that Vanguard and Bogle existed. So so let me push back a little bit on that. Sure.
2: If Vanguard had this mute uh, See I think they're they're very complementary. The mutual ownership structure. Of course, and, and hand and glove. Because hypothetically in the alternative universe, Vanguard never gets into passive and indexing
3: and instead just does low cost active. Which would destroy though. They'd get all the money. I don't think yes, so. Yes, they would. I don't yep. think so. Because if you look at any study, the lowest cost active funds beat their benchmarks way more. And Vanguard's active funds. Relatively
2: still- speaking, the the yeah, amongst look- amongst active yes. funds. Yes the lowest cost wins but if you're low cost active versus someone else doing low cost passive you're gonna lose
3: yeah over the fullness of
4: time maybe
2: part of my theory on
3: low cost passive i don't think it would have happened without vanguard because it's just that that, could be true because i it's possible you know because the wells fargo index fund which was the second one to ever come out in the early 70s right yes Still charges forty four basis points and with a load, and that's with Vanguard in the picture.
2: And and how much uh, has the Wells Fargo index amassed in assets? Oh, uh, nothing. It's like no. It's very little. So that's why these two are. So here's successful low
3: cost. Yeah. Uh, successful indexing, not attracting assets. But it's it's the low cost. Th- this this whole thing that we're experiencing with with what I call the Bogle effect. It, it's it's low cost. That's the thing. I call it the great cost migration. It is much more powerful than indexing. Indexing is really just taking a group of stocks and market cap weighting them, right? Or, and each index company does it a different way. Like there is no like set. Right. DFA standard.
2: is different from Vanguard yeah. is different from Or how from about the Black, Russell 1000 is different than the S&P 500. Right.
3: The S&P 500 is literally active. I mean, it's really because it's cheap. And if you were to have, let's say indexing wasn't even a concept. We don't even know what it is. Right. If you had made uh, active mutual funds, and got them down to those low fees that vanguard's active funds currently are at they would utterly destroy they'd be the biggest uh, active mutual fund shop six times over See, that's my I, opinion I, I
2: just feel like active is sold by performance and if you're low cost it'll help your performance but depending on your model there there are active funds that have great years and then have terrible years and if they were low cost i think you it would, would w- have
3: inflows and outflows over time Vanguard's active funds would rise to the top in the 10 and 20 year time Right, frames. but it would
2: take decades to get there.
3: Right. Oh, right. It still would have taken a while. It would have been the graduate, Then suddenly, it just would have all happened with active instead of passive. It would have happened though,
2: because I, I, I think know. low because cost
3: I, I think is really what he pushed forward and what is here to stay. So, so indexing the, is such a. You know, there are active funds that are very, very passivish. They well, basically there are closet, closet indexers. indexers. We'll come back. Yeah, hold that thought. And there's we're gonna come index funds that are pretty active. So, indexing is a very nuanced conversation. What isn't nuanced and what is the mother of all trends is high cost to low cost. All right. So, so let's put some flesh on those bones. Okay. In 2016- I, I think I totally didn't even answer your question, but- Well, I, well I'll, okay, okay.
2: I'm going to pin you down. Don't okay, worry. Okay. We, we got lots of time to make you answer the questions. Your, your Honor,
3: oh. would you please direct the witness to- Oh, hold, wait. You asked what the Vanguard effect was in dollars. Let's talk about dollars. Yes. Yeah. So- That mutual ownership company that he created, and once it got really popular, and the gradually then suddenly kicked in in 2008, Mm -hmm. and they started getting trillions, um, once the trillions started to kick in, a couple things happened. A, you could start to calculate the savings that Vanguard saved investors if you take the money they would have had in, say, a 60, 70 basis point active fund versus a 10 basis point index fund, and the turnover. The trading cost is like another 1% for active funds that Mm -hmm. you don't even see. You add that up. You know, arguably it's 500 billion to a trillion. Uh, there's ways it could be more. Bogle wanted to reinvest the savings, and that grows it more. But large, let's just say it's a lot of money. Now, the Vanguard effect is everybody saying, "Oh, they're getting all these flows. We're going to have to copy their we have low-cost to cut index funds." We have to cut our fees to compete. They and so in my book, a lot of people were like, "Nobody wanted to do this. Only Bogle wanted this." Right. Everybody else did it because they had to, and that mattered to some people. But ultimately, that's how everybody saw it. And I agree. And that's the Vanguard effect. And that's why I was so attracted to this topic, because as somebody looks at the flows every day, I'm like, damn, man, every every year we look at the flows and I'm like, if you pull the thread on basically 90% of this money, uh, you end up in 1974. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's all traced back to this guy and this decision to set this company up like this. And that is interesting that nobody copied Vanguard's mutual ownership structure, but it's the governing force of the whole enchilada now. Basically, people are—they have to copy it, even if they don't structurally copy it. They have to copy the products, which leads me to a, a, a statement that Bogle made that blew my mind. I, I didn't know he said this. I had noted some of his quotes, but not all of them. In one of his books, *Character Counts*, where he goes over his speeches, mm-hmm. that he's given the crew. He talks about. Well, how by v- the
2: way, the crew is what they call
3: the Vanguard employees. Employees. Yeah, uh, he talks about Vanguard's mission. Will be will start. Vanguard's will know Vanguard's mission is beginning to be successful when our market share erodes meaning everybody else has and that's happened in specific spaces but little, not overall not overall so he I, I wrote a note saying Bogle's dream on hold still despite passive revolution so so they at
2: one point in time were the number one fund in a lot of specific categories and in many areas that is no longer the case because other companies as a loss leader and to be able to market, hey, we're the number one in this, have either cut their fees below Vanguard, uh, run it at a loss. Yeah. And so there's still two, three, four in everything and much more assets under management. But when you look at the fund tables and look at specific things, it used to be Vanguard, 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 and that's no longer the case. Is that the market share loss Jack was talking about?
3: Uh, that's exactly, he would, he would have, like that's what so, uh interesting about this guy is that's a completely different trip to actually root for your market share to erode to to think that that's that's like saying i want to actually change the whole industry the whole industry um and it is happening the problem is overall vanguard still leads and flows every year right like clockwork blackrock typically in a given year vanguard let's say takes in 10 blackrock will take in seven and then, you know, you go to maybe three or two is the next one. And then
2: um, after that, it's a fraction.
3: It, yeah, and then there a lot of people see outflows. So net-wise, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock are really King Kong and Godzilla at this point. And then there's just this huge gap. <laughs> but if... Vanguard still takes in more than BlackRock, though, and we know how big they are. So ultimately, Vanguard will pass BlackRock Eventually, in if Eventually, this continues. Especially right. in a bear market. Bear markets are where Vanguard's market share really starts to grow because uh, there's no asset appreciation asset growth or market appreciation asset growth. The only thing that can actually grow your assets or stop the asset loss is flows. So once flows are the only variable, uh, the market share percentage that Vanguard has start to go, it doubles the mm-hmm. rate of growth. So bear markets are because I would always over the years here. Oh, just wait till a bear market. That's when the, all this vanguard stuff. We've gonna, heard that constant. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, door, dude, it's laughable. I'm like, if often. you're active, you should root for Fed liquidity forever, <laughs> right? Market appreciation Chewy forever, forever right. and just live with your outflows because the market appreciation will totally overwhelm that, and you'll get, you'll still stay rich. Right. A bear market is when you're probably gonna really find. Um, uh, you're gonna start to see real erosion because you're going to have the assets come down from the market, right. the outflows, and there's still arguably the a couple of trillion stuck in there trickle. because of taxes. Right. Yeah. So it's, I would say a bear market, in in my opinion, I, I we have a phrase on the team, is that bull markets are good for passive, bear markets are great. That that makes a lot of sense. Bill McNabb,
2: the previous uh, Vanguard CEO, told a fascinating story on that topic. So what they do, what some of the senior management does is they call... They log into the call center to see what clients are saying, to see how people are dealing with it. And in 08, McNabb logs in and he hears not just nervous clients, but nervous customer service reps. No one knows middle of 08. No one knows what the hell's going to happen. Am I going to lose my job? And he came to realize, hey, our folks have to sound like they're comfortable, they're confident. They can't reflect the fear from clients. So he does an all-hands-on-deck. doesn't matter how low the market goes, there will be no layoffs. Everybody's job is secured, and we're going to continue to pick up money in 08, 09. Our inflows are strong. You guys just have to communicate that to to our clients. And at that point forward, the sp- it was a fire hose. Everybody was get All the things that were being sold was flowing straight to
3: Vanguard. Yeah, 2008 was the year that made... Vanguard and ETFs. Um, it was one of those years where a lot of active managers did worse in the market. And so it was one of those, oh, you couldn't even save me from the 35% The Your whole all. reason for yeah. existing. So right. that was one. The liquidity 38%,
2: ETFs. 38%, 54% peaked to trough.
3: Yeah. Um, and in Vanguard astonishingly took in flows every month in 2008, which even in October, where <laughs> we were already weary of going down. In October 2008, the market was down 17% in a month, and they took in money. And that's when I really I look back at this. This is I might have been starting to look at this at 2014 15. That's when I really got on this whole notion that bear markets are actually going to speed this thing up. Yeah, and we've been he- banging that drum internally, and we've been proven right so far. Uh, and this year is no exception. Um, Vanguard is leading flows. I think I I did a stat. I forget the exact flows. It's something like Vanguard's taken in I don't know, eighty ninety billion. The rest of the industry combined is like negative two fifty. It, it's it's almost
2: as if people are selling under other funds and sending the money to Vanguard. I
3: mean, it's or, just coincidental. There's also this. I see, the Vanguard flows are so good and persistent because, Van, and I asked Bogle why are why are Vanguard investors so disciplined, and he said because they had to find us. These are people who who di- weren't stuck in it because they got a kickback from a fund company through right. a broker. They found us and they're usually pretty with it. And I also think this is, a, and I point this out in the book, behavior of Vanguard investors is off the charts good. Yeah. But I, and I think advisors like you who are, uh, were are specialized in behavior. I think your job's made a little easier by just introducing a cheap index fund. I think it's easier to behave when you have a cheap index fund as a tool because you're like, I call it the uh, like a resignation. You're like, what am I going to do? Hop onto right. some high flying who has right. a good year. At who's least short they're the
2: underperforming, but at least they're expensive. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, And I think that that resignation is made behavior, and there's all this stuff on psychology and behavior that seems to be like written about. But I'm like, I try to imagine, try writing all that stuff if all you have is active mutual funds that charge 1%. It's much harder. It's easier to reflect on behavior and how important it is when you have a cheap index fund. So I think Bogle's contribution to behavior was monumental just by introducing the index fund. And also think Bogle was interesting in that he wasn't really into the efficient market hypothesis. He wasn't mm-hmm. really an academic. A lot of what he did, though, impacted those worlds. I think, but and people may see him as like thinking that way. But he, I think, he was just a very practical guy mm-hmm. who kind of just saw it makes no sense to charge all this money because when stuff when you start to compound, much of that compounding then goes to the intermediary, not you. Right. So, so it's interesting about the
2: flows to Vanguard. My partner Josh Brown calls this. The relentless bid. And what he means by that is everybody who has Vanguard in their 401k, everybody who has Vanguard in their IRA, their accountant says, hey, it's time to make your contribution. It goes to Vanguard twice a month or every other week, depending on when you get paid. In Wall Street, it seems to be twice a month, you know, that. Uh, there's a percentage, and, and in my firm, I watch these like $50,000 checks go out every month to, to the 401k company, and a huge percentage of that is captured by Vanguard. So even when the the tide goes out in the market like the first half of the year, you're still sending money to Vanguard automagically.
3: It just happens. The other thing is um, an underrated word is trust. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you look at Vogel— And you had a quote in my book about this, which is, must you have used only quotes with curses for me? (laughs) It was hard to avoid them, man. (laughs) (laughs) But I, (laughs) I think when you curse, you're saying your best stuff. That's why okay. you curse because you're so into it. <laughs> so it happens to be your best points when I listen back to your audio. Right, happen to contain curses and I maybe there's a correlation there. Oh, it's a, but it's it's good but, to know. But you, you the made, take the bull and go home. That yeah, quote. Yeah, it, it basically over time, uh, it was really other people shooting themselves in the foot. Active funds showing uh, that they you know people's experience over time that added up and then you see Vanguard over here and they just look Boy Scout right. in comparison that's a great phrase and so so keep boys, in mind that in the- trust it gets built over 30 40 years because people ask me all the time how can how isn't Vanguard's market share eroding when everybody has cheap index funds now even JP Morgan Goldman who have armies of advisors they could just move them all in and I'm like well you have 44 45 uh, years of trust built up goodwill banked and the low cost. So it doesn't matter if somebody's zero in Vanguard's three basis points. It's not enough because the trust in the branding is so strong and it will be for a while. It could erode eventually, but right now, that trust is so underrated, it's not just the fees.
2: Nobody's ever accused Vanguard of being a vampire squid, jamming its funnel into the vein of money flows as, as we heard about uh, some large companies during the financial crisis. And there was no accounting scandal at Vanguard. There was no IPO spinning. There was no – go down the list of all the scandals, the analyst scandals, scandal after scandal after the derivative scandal with Orange County. It was one after another after another, and they're like, That's, we're owned how by about our the, investors. We the don't do that. The mutual
3: fund overnight trading scandal yeah. that Elliot Spitzer investigated. Here's the thing that I feel for the rest of the world is that the structure – of a publicly traded asset manager is such that you are, you oh. you have to serve the, the shareholders who want more money, and where where's the money going to come from? The investors, uh, or your clients, and that is a vicious tension to live in. And and people try their best. And some companies, like you take a BlackRock, good people work there. They like to serve their clients. I think they like w- uh, what Bogle pushed onto them, but mm-hmm. they are still having to live with that inherent tension. And there's probably going to be times where they have to make a decision. Well we should we should try to get them into the higher cost one because we have to meet our revenue goals. And this is the sort of thing that Bogle would talk about any time he had a chance, which is the two masters mm-hmm. that, um speaking of masters in business, <laughs> the two masters, it's hard to serve two masters. And his structure was such that there was only one master, which was the owner of the company, was the investor. So and I know this story gets told all the time. People kind of know it, but it again, when you dive into it and trace, the amount of money this guy commandeered and the idea that no one's copied it just makes this such a fascinating story. I heard your interview with Spencer Jacob and the mm-hmm. meme stocks, and you said you couldn't make this fiction because you could never invent no it. No one it would to, believe it, right. I would say the same thing about Vogel. Right. You could never dream this guy up in, like, the 60s. You just couldn't, you couldn't dream this, maybe, possibly, but – and I know the story isn't that interesting, but if you – again, the more you think about it and ponder it, you're like, wow. You know that's the the old joke.
2: I don't know who I'm stealing the line from, but the difference between fiction and nonfiction is fiction has to be plausible. Nonfiction can be utterly insane because it's real. But you tell some of these. St- Listen, the I I have coming up. Bill Bill Browder and Red Notice would have will have broadcast, and that has to be a work of nonfiction because if it was fiction, you would look at it and say this is just too ridiculous to have ever occurred. It can't be real. And and so the story loses effect, but you find out that all this stuff happened, it's it's insane. I, I totally agree with you. We'll talk a little more, bit more about Jack and how completely contradictory his background is and how, how interesting it is. Um, the thing with the other ETF con- companies, you, what you're essentially saying
3: is that there are fiduciaries, and then there are really fiduciaries.
2: Is that what I'm hearing from
3: you? Yeah. um, Bogle wasn't necessarily against high cost or active. The word he focused in on was stewardship. He thought there are good stewards and bad stewards. Mm -hmm. Because he says, if you're a small company asset manager, you probably need to charge 1% because you got to keep the lights on. 1% of a million isn't a lot of money. 1% on $30 is a ton of money. And so what he thought was they broke their stewardship by not sharing any of those economies of scale. The dollar fees were enormous. So I think that's ultimately where he was trying to separate what they did from others. Because, again, I found in a lot of his books he was proud of some of the active funds. So I thought stewardship was the main word, and you can be active and be a good steward. Uh, You could be even moderate cost and be a good steward. I think the idea is, are you, you know, sort of totally... (laughs) abusing the relationship you have as the controller of somebody's money. And I think that's where he really had problems. And he wrote many books that are just all one big rant, especially he wrote a rant about the 2008 crisis, and he wrote a rant about 2001 and Enron. And these books are where he just is like, he's, he's, he's unfarnished. <laughs> and other books, he's just a little softer. But he found that that was what pissed him off the most, is when people broke their fiduciary and stewardship bonds, not necessarily active or even high cost. It was about, is the high cost warranted? Um, And in the case of uh, asset managers, I think I have a chapter called The Fall and Rise of Active because active is evolving in different ways. But the fall is a missed opportunity. I think these companies in the 80s and 90s, when they got enormous, they got into 401k plans, that 70, 80, 90 basis points they charge even more um, was once you got... $10, $30, 50000000000 $10, $30, 50000000000 billion in that fund. They They never shared any of that. And I think it was a missed opportunity. Had they shared a little bit of it, they still would have made tons of money, and they would have been able to bank goodwill, lower the fees, and increase their beat rates against the benchmark because their fees are now lower. Mm-hmm. It was a missed opportunity. And I find it interesting that they were so disrupted when their whole job is to analyze companies and stocks and try to figure out who's going to get disrupted and why. And they've seen Amazon's come along in these other industries, but they it's like they never applied it to themselves. And I find that kind of interesting that they were so disrupted and they're students of disruption. Uh,
2: Well, first, very few people have an accurate self-perception, and that includes companies. But second, more important, how often do companies cannibalize themselves, compete against themselves, cut fees if competition doesn't force them? And so I can think of, you know, my favorite example is Apple. Remember the first Apple was like a deck of cards. It was 500 bucks, the first the first iPod, uh, 1,000 songs in your pocket, 1,000 songs, laughable. And it was, I think, three ninety nine. dollars It was big and heavy. So they come out next year with another one. Now it's 10,000 songs, and it's 100 bucks less. And the next one is 40,000 songs, and now it's one ninety nine. until eventually you get the little iPod iPod touch and the reason the Apple story is so instructive is it's an outlier people don't cut cut costs unless they have to people won't cannibalize themselves unless, and then they said oh we're going to build that into our phone and give it away for free and you know someone had to say what are you crazy this is a billion dollar business well if we don't do it someone else will so we have to yeah Wall Street isn't that self-reflective.
3: Yeah, they all love Steve Jobs and that mindset, but they didn't apply it. Um, and I have a section called the Steve Jobs Rule, which is, if you don't cannibalize yourself, somebody else will. Right. And I think, you either have to cannibalize yourself or create enormous value and keep just throwing value and value and value, uh, to keep that price steady. Or but, do both and become the biggest company yeah, in the world. Exactly. So I, I do think there was, there are these outliers of people who are that hardcore. But you're right. And again, this is what made the Vanguard story interesting. And I also think what, what made it interesting was lowering fees in the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s. Nobody really cared. Like There wasn't a During demand. During the bull market, you don't notice nobody it. Nobody cared. Uh, so he, he was doing this at times when Wall Street was not... It was decades before the world figured out this actually makes sense. And that vision is, is pretty rare. And I have a uh, this sort of comparison in the book where I look at 1987 and the movie Wall Street comes out. Gordon Gecko is giving his "greed is good" speech. Bogle's in Valley Forge giving the Christmas uh, you know speech to all the employees, <laughs> and the side by side of all these young people watching Gordon Gecko wanting to go to Wall Street make a ton of money, and then Vanguard Bogle is sitting there talking about like, oh, we shaved one basis point off the fund this year. If we keep doing good fiduciary, and like. In '87, and I say this in the book multiple times. A, if I if I was an active manager, I wouldn't have shared economies of scale. I would have bought the sports. None of them did. I know, and so I they did what most of us would have done. Same thing in the '80s. I would have gone crazy in the '80s culture. I would have just got carried away. So I
2: cocaine and and Ferraris. It's it's not, not,
3: <laughs> that's the so, you know uh, in uh, in the uh, '90s in the bull market that yeah. was a whole thing. Uh-huh. It was Bogle's just weird. Every, so he's an outlier there's right. no doubt and that's why the book is on him but I, I make points to say that i would have done the same thing as them i don't i don't think i would have shared it i would have thought well we earned this money let's spend it let's buy hire new people give us our, our self raises
2: so so let's let's imagine that you're you're working at fidelity or you're working at templeton or you're working wherever and in 1994 you just had your best year in history and you walk in and say i have a great idea we should cut our fees 25% cuz think about how great that'll be for investors it, how it'll improve fund performance and how sticky clients
3: will become and you wouldn't have been laughed at they would have thrown you out of the yeah. room and fired you isn't that crazy and so you have a guy who did nothing but that for 45 years but now you he changed the whole world i mean he changed the whole investing world with that concept but you're right again i and you know the 12b1 fee which is to say which is the marketing fee for mutual yeah, funds. Yeah, it's, it's to say like, hey, look, we're we we have going to take your money and we're going to go spend it on marketing. That way we get bigger so we can share economies of scale with you and lower the fee. Well, they, they forgot the second part. And, so, <laughs> right. and Bogle was all about the second part constantly. And so I try to tell people there is a great business case study in this story. And I also tell my crypto friends, you guys should read this heavily. Bogle was more oh, DeFi. Yeah, they're, they're all
2: about saving fees.
3: Yeah, that's the thing. Like crypto almost sells themselves as Vanguard, right. but they're really old school Wall Street. Right. And I'm like, you need to get more Vanguard in your life because all we see is these billionaires hiring movie stars to do commercials. And I'm like, and you sell yourselves though as populist and for the people. Read this story. This guy was the real deal. I call him the OG of DeFi. Uh, absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about... Bogle, boggle. Everybody gets his name wrong. Jack Bogle. I know. It, I've had people internally call it the Boggle effect, and that's with where two I knew. G's. Yeah, that's where <laughs> I knew. Man, um, some people know about him, but some people don't know about him. Clearly. Even inside the bubble. So, so let's start with Jack
2: Bogle's early career. He writes a senior thesis. Uh, he went to Princeton undergrad.
3: He did that. That thesis seemed to have sealed his fate. Yeah, it did. It was a thesis about, you know, how um, the asset management industry should be better stewards. It was just basically... Uh, these his, are a drag on returns. Yeah, and- it was it was very much, again, the seed was planted. Quick side note, I interviewed Michael Lewis for this book, and when I told him that, he said he keeps a file of Princeton thesis that have changed the world. Like the atom bomb was a Princeton thesis, right, Teach right. for America. So he's like, I'm going to have to add this to my file. I'm mean, Maybe he'll have a book on it one day, but I thought that was kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, the, also the Princeton thesis is interesting because when he was searching for an idea, he went to the library, didn't know what he was going to write about, and just found um, Fortune magazine. Randomly, randomly stumbles randomly. across a magazine. And it, on the cover, it didn't even say mutual funds. You had to, like, open it, and it was, like, big money in Boston or something, and it was about mutual funds. they like, oh, I'll write about this. So I actually went and looked at magazines that were also from December 1949 that were probably laying around the library. Time magazine cover Conrad Hilton so I told, I told the hotel industry dodged a huge bullet there man <laughs> uh, so anyway he that's there was a lot of serendipity in Bogle's story that again reminded me of that meme uh, stock interview you did there was a lot of things that had to come together to produce that that meme uh, uh, sort of moment and there were a lot of things that came together that were serendipitous I would say that thesis was the first one so so Bogle eventually gets a job at the Wellington Fund, which mm-hmm. had been around I don't remember if they were the earliest mutual funds
2: or one of, the, were one like, of
3: the Yeah, there was like, like ten funds that were came out in the twenties, but they went through the twenty nine crash. And survived. And they, yeah, and they, and they actually it was a balance fund that um Pat it buffered a lot of the downfall because it was a conservative Stocks balance.
2: Stocks and buns. Mm-hmm. So so what was he doing at Wellington
3: and how long did that last? <sighs> he joined Wellington, I want to say early like early 60s, maybe even the late 50s. Uh, no, it would be 60s because he wrote the thesis. Uh, anyway, he's in the Wellington in the 60s, we'll say. Um, and then the guy who ran Wellington um, was like, uh, I'm, I'm out of here. I want you to take over the company. Bogle was, I think, I want to say 35, pretty young. Mm-hmm. And they had a problem. They were losing money because the 60s were like a great, it was like the last decade where all the, all the people taking the money were like Kathy Wood and stuff, mm-hmm. except of their day. And Wellington was like boring. It was like the value investors, how we make fun of them. And uh, so they're like, you. Bogle was like, I was selling bagels, nutritious bagels. Everybody wanted donuts. So I figured I got to start selling donuts or we're going to be out of business. So he teamed up with a high-flying growth manager, which is interesting because it was the fourth or fifth one on the list. Um, this company wasn't very well known, but they had a, a fund called the Ives Fund. Um, but the first choice he had was Franklin uh-huh. and Capital Group. And they didn't say yet. They said they declined. Now I theorize in the book had one of those. This is an
2: acquisition. In other words, he their private company. He offered to buy them and fold them into Wellington, and they said thanks but no thanks.
3: Yes, they did not want any part of merging or any acquisitions with him or Wellington. He finally gets this uh, growth manager down, you know, fourth or fifth on the list, and it goes well for a while. You know, they've got the boring stuff and the arc stuff, Mm -hmm. and uh, but then the. The, uh, basically, the stock market goes into a bear market. 66 is the peak following the yep. post-war rally. Seventy one, seventy two, 71, 72, and or 73, then, it was and bad. And 73, 74 was
2: the... Yep. By the way, parallel to 08, 09, about a
3: 56, very similar 57% crash. And right before that, the people who were at Wellington um, changed the Wellington fund, his new partners, changed the Wellington fund to be much more equity-oriented. Mm-hmm. At the exact at, wrong moment. At the exact moment. wrong time. And even Bogle had a memo saying, we, we can't do this. And he's like, no, this is the right way. Trust me. Anyway, so their growth funds fall off a cliff. They go down worse than the market. But the Wellington fund goes down the same as the market, the same 35%. It doesn't buffer at all. And I think this was probably had to be one of the most pivotal life moments of Bogle to feel he betrayed himself. He betrayed his mentor. he sold him, He sold it all out. And these guys had voting control of the board, and uh, they got into massive fights. The clashes were historically bad. They were, you know, basically pissed off at each other, uh, you know, blaming each other, and they fired him. Uh, even though he, <laughs> later in life, he's always like, "I was the victim." But he, stories are he wasn't a picnic to deal with. He's a big pain in the butt. Yeah, he's yeah, a pain absolutely. in the butt. So, anyway, um, long story short, he realizes there's a loophole. Instead of being fired and going away, he's like. I'm actually the owner or the chairman of the funds themselves. And so that gave him some leverage to sort of dig in and fight them. And they had to come up with a resolution and that the board would agree with. And so one of the ways he was able to keep a job there was he's like, I'll do the back office work and I'll, I'll set this company up mutually owned. That way it doesn't look like I'm doing some cash grab here. And all 11 people on the fund boards agreed with that. So the mutual ownership structure, I'm not sure it would have been born ever. If it wasn't for this necessity to sort of uh, satisfy different groups of people at a time when everybody was pissed off and, and upset and figuring out how to do something. So this really awful, crazy situation that was just nasty, ironically produced this amazing sort of unique structure. It was almost like a freak accident.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork.
2: So that was the first half of the freak accident. His contract says he cannot manage a fund. And so he comes up with this very clever backdoor, that's the, according to the Bogle Effect book, that very cleverly says, hey, you guys said I can't manage a fund, but there are these indexes that are unmanaged funds and we want to put an unmanaged fund in this separate entity. Tell us so that's the other freak accident.
3: Yeah. Tell us what happened from there. Yeah, that the the idea that an index fund wouldn't be quote managed and wouldn't violate his agreement with his former partners or current partners that were not talking, uh was also a lucky break. And indexing was starting to become a thing. People were writing about it in the academic journals. It it was uh, a you know, thing in academia, but not yeah. on
2: Wall Street, not in mutual funds. W- Wells really.
3: Fargo had tried one, but it was equally didn't weighted. work. And because of the Glass Steagall, they couldn't do mutual funds. There was a, a lot of things that made it. um It was you know, Steve Jobs wasn't the only one in a garage thinking about PCs. Okay, right. Something was in the air. So Bogle read a journal piece by Paul uh, Samuelson that basically was like, can someone please just put an index fund out so we can have something to benchmark these gunslingers against? Because he had, again, people were starting to come up with this notion that active May wasn't that great all, back then. So what, Bogle, Let me just,
2: let me interrupt you a second, because some of the audience is a little younger and are going to find this hard to believe. In the 60s, 70s, even 80s, if you wanted to know how your fund was doing- day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter, year-to-date, that information was not a click away. Most of the time, it didn't exist. You waited till the end of the year to get an annual update, and if you were a mutual fund holder, you would get some sort of quarterly update. But most of the time,
3: you had no idea how well these funds were doing. This is a great point, and Michael Kitsis, who is a Mm -hmm. great writer about the advisor world, once wrote a blog post called... Um, the Internet Killed the Active Fund Star. Mm-hmm. And it was all about how once information started to spread quickly, it was over because you could quickly compare. Back then, you couldn't do that. I had no and idea. It, it, was an ev- it helped active, I think, back in the day. What, I, I, not, by the not, way, not displaying their <laughs> expensive by the way. underperforming funds? How, how, could, the way, how could that hurt them? I sent that article to Bogle in an email. Yeah. And I was like, hey, what do you think of this internet theory? He writes back like two pages. And he's like, <laughs> Well, it helped a little, but I'd like to think I had something to do with it. <laughs> and he proceeds to write like all the things that went into creating the passive revolution. And he did, and he said, you know, internet helped a- at the end, mm-hmm. but the foundation had to be there. But anyway, um, back to your story. So Bogle says, I will take this guy up on his offer and do an index fund, and it's not doesn't have to be managed, so I can hopefully squeeze it by the board. He even knew he was like sort of. Yeah, right near the line because later in a oh no, he was it, way over the line. Yeah, but but he, he knew said it, they but, bought it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he might have even said they actually bought it. Right. Uh, so his his uh, Jan Twardowski, which who was his first PM mm-hmm. of that fund, had to call himself a portfolio administrator, not so, a manager. So, yeah. Especially. So they went through the whole thing of like we're not managing money here. The so, whole charade. Yeah. So that necessity was also a lucky break. There were many of these as we just went over that mm-hmm. makes you think there was some universal force ushering this along somehow because if any of these things doesn't happen, this probably doesn't happen the way that we see it. So but long story short, um they come with the index fund, uh they launch it, nobody cares. Uh it doesn't sell it well because it's this is a underrated point of Bogle's story. The index fund ultimately would not pay brokers. So he had to it was it's like making a movie outside of all the distribution systems right. the theaters Netflix and you and you're gonna like people have to come to your backyard to watch it and <laughs> it, it, right. so he made something that you had to leave the entire system and go to them to buy and that was really ballsy I mean this is a guy with like five kids at the time and trying to raise a family I mean I, a couple of times waiting in the book, for a heart transplant at the same time yeah I'm like a couple times in the book I'm like you know, I have a bad heart. I'm raising a family. I, I might just go to the big company and take the payday and just, like, not worry about this. But to, to do these moves and to purposely delay the success, I give him a lot of credit. This is the the long, hard walk that a lot of people just don't have the courage to take, but he did it over and over. So so let's talk about – I was only half joking about
2: the heart transplant. However, in the book, you talk about it gave him a certain – life is short, live every day like it's your last, and don't go for the money grab, impact the universe, how significant were his health issues, and eventually he gets a life-saving heart transplant. He used to jokingly say, hey, of the heart of, this, of a 20-year-old, really, uh, 28-year-old, I think, uh, how significant was the fact that his life expectancy for the at least for the first was it 50, 60 years was he could drop
3: dead tomorrow and almost did several times. Oh, yeah. His wife took him to the hospital all the time. It was a whole recurring thing. He, he brought a defibrillator. Did I say that right? Yeah, defibrillator to play squash. So he told the, whoever he was playing with, if I fall over, just, you know, just put these on my chest. <laughs> Shocked me back. So so uh, people, like, people were hesitant to play squash with
2: him. But I, uh, I, I would think that <laughs> it would encourage him to let other people... If you're winning too much, it's like, oh, I couldn't fit, get it out of the package in time.
3: Yeah. Um, I, I, you're right. I think his heart was one of 10 things that made Bogle. And I have a chapter called Explaining Bogle because... Mm-hmm. Again, he's so unique. I'm like, what went in to produce this particular character? And his heart was one of the things I go into. And I think that idea that you're going to die any minute, any day, we're all, we can push that off as people normally. He couldn't. He could not. It was all, it was right in his face constantly. And I think that gave him a jolt of life. Um, You know, people who survive... uh, car crashes and airplane crashes, or nine eleven or have similar experiences of, and he had that almost probably like more daily than most people. Uh, so that was probably a big thing that helped him. Your point about not wanting the money, um, I do think he was almost miscast in this industry. I think he wrote a book called Enough about how you don't right. need that much money, yada yada. Um, and I, I think he almost would have made a better... He would have been better in a different industry. I think he was almost miscast. I also think he was miscast in time. I think he was meant for the 18th century. Well, you wasn't you his, his books,
2: grandfather, uh, yes, did, did something very similar with insurance, if I remember your book correctly?
3: Yeah, he had a great grandfather who was basically uh, a gadflyer or, uh, uh, what would you call that? Like the a Jack Bogle cons- of the annuity business. Yeah, it was like the fire insurance business. And you read this guy's pamphlets and he's like the insurance companies are ripping off these firemen lower your fees and and you realize man this you can you can read Bogle in there so (laughs) there is genetic there's some genetics involved as well and I I included that because Bogle loved his great-grandfather he would read these speeches he gave and take a lot of uh, uh inspiration from it but yeah I would I would say that you know that is definitely one of them but I think the enough thing even though he had enough money and he wasn't... Um, he was sort of immune to that greed for money. Mm-hmm. What he couldn't ever get enough of was adulation. Mm-hmm. That's why I almost think like... He, usually, if you really wish want adulation, you go into the media, entertainment. Um, maybe you're a physician. You know, somebody who's like good at getting thanks a lot. So, I think he, he was... We all have to fill some void. Like, right. <laughs> we're all, you know, holes in the middle. And I think his was... He wanted you know people to tell him how great he was he wanted people to say he was important and his son you know told me that when he would get stopped on the street he never tired of hearing that and the kids could never understand why he would sit there and talk to this ex-doorman Stranger, for 10 minutes right. yeah and um you made my retirement yep. possible you helped me pay for he my could kids never get out just endless and he so, just soaked it up yes so he could so he got a, hey, enough was applied to the money but maybe not the sort of adulation and that, that's that's what drove him and I tried to get at that because you, he wasn't a, even though I'm very complimentary of him here, he was a human being, he had flaws and he mm-hmm. had needs, they just weren't the, exactly the, the, the prototype of somebody on Wall Street or running money, they were completely different huh. uh, in, in many ways and so I you know explore that in the book because again when I said why hasn't anybody copied Vanguard's structure, they said there's no economic incentive and then I said well why did this guy do it? And everybody had the same answer. That's a good question. <laughs> and so you have to kind of look at the character of the person um, and, you know, try to figure out what what drove them. And so I tried to do my best to sort of lay all that out.
2: So so here's the, the key Jack Bogle question. With Vanguard today, following this rally off the lows in June 2022, um, making up more than half of the first half of the year's crash, and, and that means that Vanguard is... What seven and a half, eight trillion dollars? Well, I don't even know where they are these days.
3: Well, they were eight point three at the sort of top. I think they're probably seven point five today, something like that. Uh, so, so le- between seven and a half, eight trillion dollars, yeah.
2: would that, could that have ever happened without Jack Bogle and and his philosophy?
3: No, just just Couldn't flat happen. out. No, no. Nope. I agree. The people who ran Vanguard after, I have a chapter called Bogle versus Vanguard because he had. <laughs> This is fascinating. He had problems with his own company. and the, the ETFs, overseas oh, Smart Investing. beta, international. Right, right. He would take giant craps on all, like, 80% of the funds that they serve. Because <laughs> <laughs> he kind of honed it on, I, you know. And I found that really interesting. And he'd be on campus doing it, especially ETFs. That really pissed them off. Smart beta, he, all of that. He just thought it was needless, distraction. Why are you doing this? And he thought, why is Vanguard trying to get so big? But the other people who managed Vanguard, I thought they did a good job. Um so in the book I try to thread the needle because there's a growing gap between the Bogleheads and Vanguard mm-hmm. because they see Vanguard going into wealth management, going into private equity, going into these places, and Bogle was more like, Enough. We don't need to be that big. When I met with him once, he was like, I can't believe we have three trillion dollars. Like that is <laughs> that is almost absurd. It's it's a ridiculous. Now they have double Bill Mc
2: Bill McNabb says, Hold my beer, Jack. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Right? So, Watch this. But then you have to ask yourself, you know, Bogle was sort of pushed out of Vanguard. That's what's interesting about Bogle. He was pushed out of but he But
2: but not off the campus. He was pushed out of the executive suite yes. into a, Jack, Research you're role. the chairman, yeah. you're the gray hair, yeah. you're the driving philosophy. <laughs> now, I have a ETF meeting and a, a private equity meeting for our 401ks, but- Please, tell everybody about our philosophy.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the core of Vanguard is still very much Bogle's DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the outskirts, they're changing. They are pushing people into ETFs. You would have hated that. Um, the wealth management, you know, I don't think he would have done that. He wouldn't have done ETFs. We know that. Uh, he probably wouldn't have expanded that much overseas as they are now. But you, one could make the argument, well, shouldn't these other places, don't they need a little vanguarding? Yeah, are, are, yeah. absolutely. And so there's you could see both sides to this story. But Bogle also... The way he was pushed out, I believe, and then they went and launched ETFs. Like within ten years of him saying no to ETFs, that was sort of a—I uh, mean, he might have saw it as a slap in the face. Um, that, in the book, that, you you describe his gentle easing out as while
2: he's in the hospital dying, right? Didn't didn't um what was it Jack uh who who was the Brennan president? Jack Brennan before Bill McNabb. Jack was his protege. They yep. were very tight. And the board says, hey, Jack Bogle's in the hospital waiting for a heart. He's dying. I just went to see him yesterday. It doesn't look like this guy's going to make it. Someone has to run the farm.
3: Yeah. And what happened? Well, Brennan was, uh, I, again, I think he was a, a great CEO. Uh, fabulous. Fabulous steward. The the big issue there was the ETFs, and Gus Sauter was the one who had the idea. I interviewed Gus for the book. Mm-hmm. Gus Souter told me that who the, was the chief investment he was a CIO. officer, mm-hmm. and he was also um, very close with Bogle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they were, had a very good relationship. Souter looked at Vanguard and thought about a massive crisis: what's going to happen? All these people are in index funds, and we're going to get all these calls. How are we going to deal with redemptions? And he thought if we could make the ETF uh, a share class, people who wanted to come in and out of the fund, we could they could use that to trade, and that would buffer and protect the index fund investors. Bogle kind of saw ETFs as they just want to get bigger. They want to distribute. And that's why he was against it. Sauter's reason almost is more Bogle-like. Sauter told me he told Bogle that later in life and Bogle kind of I think it softened him because during my interviews with Bogle over say the last 6 years before he passed away, he got more and more soft on ETFs. Um he would he, the last interview in particular is here's what he'd say he'd say something like Well, look, I've always said, as long as you buy the broad market ones and you don't trade them, low cost, like ours, they're fine. But then he couldn't just let that stay. He couldn't just let it go. (laughs) Like he he always said that. That was what he always said. But but it wasn't. they would be like dot, dot, dot. And then he just would be like, but these things are marketing tools. They're for trading. We don't (laughs) even know what people are doing. Uh, You know, I don't like them. And so he was always wrestling with them. I feel like my metaphor I use is that the index fund was his beautiful firstborn daughter. And the ETFs like the tatted up bad boy that she married, <laughs> right? And so it, ETFs did a lot to advance indexing, and they're and now they're in the family. And he has to deal with them. And it was this, always this sort of like push pull, and it was never an easy relationship with him. And it's I, the chapter in the book that goes over this is Bogle and ETFs. It's complicated because it is complicated. i um, Rick Ferry, who I interviewed also, who's a mm-hmm. big Bogle head. He he tried to tell Bogle many times. ETFs have really helped. Advance your cause, and they've, super they've they made it very easy to get. And they're everywhere. Use, right, you never have to go to Vanguard to get index funds now. You can just buy them anywhere through the ETF. So it, you know, even the most diehard bogleheads and friends of Jack, Bert Malkiel, mm-hmm. they're e- fans of Charlie ETFs. Ellis, yeah, on the list. Yeah, basically, uh, three things. Everybody disagree with Bogle on pretty much. ETFs, Mm -hmm. international investing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bogle says you don't need it. Almost everybody I talked to, even his friends said, I I like a little international. Uh, And the third thing was Bogle's prediction for what will happen to the asset management industry. I couldn't find anybody to agree with this. In his last interview, six months before he passed away, he was the most prophetic I've seen him. And he said, there's going to be a mass mutualization of this industry because these companies, it's not going to be enough to lower fees. It's too late. They're just going to give away all their margins. It makes no sense. They're just going to what they're gonna to have to do at some point is just convert to our structure. And so the big asset managers, there'll be a mass mutualization and no I couldn't find nobody to agree with that. So those are so Bogle said a lot of things that even his closest friends and people who look up to him did not agree with. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. So let's start out with my, my favorite
2: discussion on indexing. Indexing has been called un-American, anti-competitive, Marxist, communist. It will ruin the economy. It will crash the market. Turns out to be none of those things. Why so much hate for something that has saved investors trillions in fees?
3: Well, that's why. (laughs) The the answer is in the question. I asked the question
2: that way on purpose because this has come primarily – from the active community sure.
3: and the and academics. academics they've hired. Bogle really, found, he heartbroken by the academics. Uh, he really thought, he, he got the active people doing it, but he thought the academics were a little uh, irresponsible on this front. You, I am convinced if you took all the people who have ever trashed uh, indexing or fear-mongering. And looked at their 401ks. It's, it's got to be low-cost index funds. Of course. Because they're
2: smart. They're not of dumb. Of course. And by the way, the next time one of these things happens in a debate, I'm going
3: to steal that and say, what's in your 401k? Yeah. This is exactly how to debate somebody on this. If they start doing right. that, you just say, well, uh, okay, well... How do you it, invest? Yeah. Because if you're not willing to... The like The fact be- that
2: Warren Buffett is, is an advocate.
3: <laughs> I, I mean... and and. I think yeah. most most of and us we, think look, Warren is an honest steward of active investing yeah and Buffett recommends I mean Buffett is an active investor but he recommends if unless you're gonna do this all the day all the time just right. put it index fund you'll be and you'll do better than almost all the pros anyway right. That was his advice to people and I he actually I was able to interview him for this book and I asked him if his advice was the same. Because index is getting bigger. And he said, yes, it's still by S&P. But then I said, well, do you think indexing is too big? Or? And he's like, no, it's possible it gets so big that it's a regulatory matter. But that's an issue for another day. So I do think that ultimately the the reason the problem here with indexing isn't necessarily indexing. Because, look, all you're doing is taking a basket of stocks and you're buying them. Right. Every, that's all funds are all across the board. Look at the Fidelity Magellan. It's Apple. It's Amazon. It's the same stuff, man. It's just cheaper, right? This is all indexing is. It's not that different. It's just the same group of stocks for a lower fee, right? I think the problem that we're going to run into is Vanguard and BlackRock are going to own too much of corporate America. Right now, Vanguard owns about 8 9% of most mm-hmm. stocks. BlackRock, 7 So that's 15 between them. At this rate, they're probably going to own 30 Thirty-five percent of stocks collectively, because the rule is a fund can o- no own no more than ten percent, not a company. And so the rule's old; it was made back when fund complexes were right. one fund, not 30, 50. So I think there might regulation is probably the only thing that can stop their growth at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll probably be an issue. You know, Bernie Sanders tweeted about it, although I I don't think I, he. I
2: I actually. Put Bernie in his place because he said the most, the most ignorant. I mean, on either side of the aisle, I don't remember a politician misunderstanding. Hey, Bernie, not for nothing, but all of your supporters are giant winners because of Vanguard.
3: I have I had a line in the book that I removed, which is that, Bogle, has done more for average people mm-hmm. and to reform Wall Street than Bernie Sanders could ever dream of. Right. Then all then, he does is put bills that that fail. <laughs> um yeah, I mean he's he talks a big game but he doesn't get much done. Um I'm surprised Bernie isn't more in touch with that. That's a weird thing to me. I was very
2: polite in bur, the uh, I uh, the post began. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Come uh, on, you, you if anybody but, should understand mutualization and communal ownership, yeah. It's a socialist like you, shouldn't you get that? But so, but, all right. but
3: but real quick, I think what we're going to find is Passive is going to continue to grow, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be the core of most people's portfolios because it's just too too good of a deal. So let me push so what, back what, on what's you. What's going to happen? So let me just give me finish Go this part. And this is a chapter I have. What's going to happen is active won't die. It's just going to get crazier. So what's going to happen is the core of a portfolio will be low-cost passive vanilla, check that box. Right. Th- then people are going to decorate that with arc. Arc. Right. Um Uh, call options they're going to play the you know trade they might use bitcoin or crypto basically like hot sauce and otherwise dull meal to sort of distract them and i think active is going to get ironically way more active because of passive Mm -hmm. and i think that maybe that's okay so i think that's ultimately where we'll stand and those active funds will shine enough consistently to make it that it's never fully passive. There'll always be somebody who's gonna figure it out for a little while, and they'll be used probably to complement passive, but I do not see a reversal where an right. 80 basis point growth manager from a legacy active shop replaces Vanguard. Right. So that's why when people freak out about Kathy Wood and they're like, how can she have money?
2: Her $30 billion. I'm
3: like, dude, you're hitting her from a fundamental stock picker point of view. Your competition is an arc, it's Vanguard, dude. Right. You're right. fighting the wrong enemy. She's competing with like lottery tickets and crypto right. and stuff that would go on the outside of your portfolio. And I say, if you have Vanguard in the core, you want a little wild and crazy. You want somebody who's dreaming five years into the future, just in case they're right. You don't want to miss out. She's the ornament, not the Christmas tree. I Totally. Exactly. And I think Kathy has been a kind of negative on index funds. And I've, I've told her p- privately and in, in public, like I really think you should team up. I think you should be Explaining how you're, you're the a frosting, compliment. not yes. the cake. You could. She should at 100. She's like, well, people. Index funds are a misallocation of capital. They're just putting money randomly. But I'm like, honestly, you can't. I, I you can't. I would not bank my kids' college education money on In a arc. high growth manager. I just <laughs> wouldn't do it. So, but I do. I can understand the uh, idea of a little FOMO. I don't want to miss out on something like a crypto, Bitcoin, Arc. You know some of these high-flying growth stocks, because it's like a call option on the future. And I think those are why those funds not only sell, but have withstood this bear market. Mm-hmm. They haven't really seen the outflows well, that by haters with, think.
2: By withstanding, the, they may be down sixty percent, but they're still seeing inflows.
3: Yeah, yeah, they're still seeing inflows or no outflows. And I, so I try to explain to them that the Vanguard effect is actually that. And so that's why this book, again, it's not just index funds. B- Bogle, the Bogle effect is, it, but the uh, way it's impacting active, it's impacting the wealth management industry, it's impacting trading, it's impacting behavior. That's how powerful this is. It's not just a mutual fund story, and I, that was what also made the book exciting.
2: So, so let's come back to, uh, you know, if if Vanguard did an active low cost, they would have been as successful. Here's the pushback to that. First, you buy an index fund, or you make your own index. It costs you almost nothing to create the portfolio. Meaning, here's what you're gonna own, and you don't need a staff of 40, you don't need a research team, you don't have to buy outside Wall Street research, you don't have these massive trading costs. Inherently, the fact that it's an index, and whether it's the Vanguard total Wait, market out, or the out. S&P 500.
3: You, you're living in a world where Vanguard has low-cost active funds, but somebody has invented indexing. Some, Right. Oh, okay. My my thing was indexing isn't a concept. Okay. Just, just pretend it just pretend it doesn't exist. Oh, so low cost index low cost active versus expensive active. Well, uh, you would agree with that. Of course you can't disagree with that. But here's the thing, but, no, no, but, but let, let low, me, cost low cost active versus low cost passive. So, but There's if, an inherent advantage to passive. Here's the problem with your premise though. Indexing never would have gotten low cost if Vanguard didn't do it. I promise you. I I think you're right about that. No, I'm not
2: disagreeing with that. Because
3: I think they would have come out with indexing, but you know these firms are like, oh, we'll charge 80. We'll Uh, charge 75. Even if you get to 50, I still think you're not powerful enough to overwhelm. It's because it's under 10 that it becomes... So what did the State Street Spiders SPY come out? What was the fee? This is a great... Thank you for asking this, because this is one of the data points that drove me to write this book as well. SPY came out at 20 basis points. So that's still cheap. Yeah, but... This was in 1993. Why did it pick 20 basis points? I actually interviewed Steve Bloom, who uh-huh. was Amex, who put out Spy with Nate Most, because that's what the Vanguard 500 Index Fund was. Okay. So think about that. And Bogle hated ETFs, but the dude had a profound positive influence on the whole on industry because it started dirt cheap. I think Spy would have been one percent if there's no Vanguard. I think ETFs probably would have been invented too, but they would have been one percent. And it would not have been 20 and 10 basis points as they are now.
2: So here's the crazy market efficiency question. There are index ETFs and mutual funds that charge 150 and 200 basis points. And they still have tens of millions, not billions, but tens, maybe even hundreds of millions in assets.
3: How do these things still exist? They probably have loads. They probably are bribing somebody to put somebody in there. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's no doubt about that. That's it. I mean, that's the answer. <laughs> so, so much because there's no natural reason for that. I mean, look, um, we have a phrase we use in the team called the Cabernet Lane. Mm-hmm. There's still a huge market out there for wining and dining advisors, um, your friends, and your golf buddies. People still will hook you up. I'll buy your index fund. I know it's sixty basis points, but it's my friend. There is still a lot of that going on. I'm not, and and that happens in every business. But there's still a, a decent Cabernet uh lane in asset management but where- that
2: can only happen on the brokered side i per so we're uh, uh, let me get self let me insert myself a little <laughs> further into the conversation so at my shop we're an ria we're a fiduciary if i'm looking at an index fund and there's a 60 basis point because somebody version because someone took me out to dinner and there's a vanguard five basis point I don't believe I can legally, on behalf of my clients, buy the sixty-bit fund. As a, as an advisor, we have to buy yeah. the five-bit fund. That's now, true. if you're a brokerage house, if yeah. you're and you follow uh, what what's the and there's some dual people who do who try to do both, but
3: you can't. It's
2: either you're a fidu- like we said and earlier a lot the of tools. there are fiduciaries yeah. and a fiduciary. Either you are a legitimate fiduciary where the best interest of yeah. the client dominates. Or you are a broker, and really, it's the old, it's the old Louis B. Mayer um, joke, uh, which I'll I'll skip the dirty part and just
3: say, hey, we've already decided that. Now we're just debating price. I think my point on the Cabernet Lane was even beyond that index fund example into ETFs, where you know you just get to know somebody. They sell you on the narrative of this story, and maybe they they decide to put some money into your dividend fund that might be you know 30, 50 basis points more than All right. the Vanguard one. But you could say to yourself, "Well, the strategy is better." But in your case of the index fund, you're right. There'd be no fiduciary reason to go to the sixty. So, like I said, it's probably all loads or sort of captive assets somehow. Mm-hmm. That that makes a whole lot of sense. But by the way, some people are like, "No, I think somebody would come out and just put zero fee." You know how like Robinhood came out, we'll do free trading. Like somebody would have come out, like just all like. But I would, like the problem. With that premise of like somebody who isn't Bogle in a for-profit asset manager to do this as a loss leader is ultimately they would have the 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 curtain would would have come up at some point and you would have figured out oh my God here's how they're screwing me over here in other words if you put something out there for that cheap you're you're, you're almost going to always look to make money somewhere else right that's what makes Vanguard unique there is no curtain to pull. It's just that cheap because it's that cheap. That, that's their business model. That's their business model. So I do think maybe somebody would have come out gimmicky style and done oh free index funds, but I think ultimately people would have been like oh you're just trying to upsell me on this or you're pay for order flow or you're taking my, my money and uh, getting more interest on it somewhere else. There would have been something that would have soured people and it would have then gotten a bad name. Low cost is a, a good has a good reputation because it was done the hard way, mm-hmm. and so. We go back to 1993 when Spy was 20 and Vanguard was 20. What people don't realize is that Vanguard started at 45, 46 basis points. They came down like one or two a year. So it wasn't until the 90s they were even 20. Mm-hmm. And then in the last decade, now they're 3, 4 across the board pretty much. Which is just just. That's wild. when people went gaga for them. They didn't really sweep the nation until they got to 10. So uh, you and I, the quote you used,
2: the, I think the other factor was the financial crisis was the last straw for a lot of main street investors. So we we had the analyst scandal, we had the IPO scandal, we had the mutual fund scandal, on and on and on and on, not even talking about Bernie Madoff. And the financial crisis was, you know what, I'm done with this game. I'm just going to give my money to Vanguard and, and let it run. And I'll check my portfolio once a year. That was a sea change from if you remember in the 90s, you couldn't walk into a bar or a restaurant without CNBC being on the TV. Everybody, every barbecue, every dinner party, every conversation was about stocks. For a while, investing in the market was America's pastime. And the 2000s kind of cured us of that, at least until the pandemic.
3: This is why I think books written on behavior and psychology need to give Vanguard's index funds and Bogle way more credit than they do. Mm-hmm. They don't even mention them, really. But I'm like, try try behaving in a 2008 without this as an option. Well, think about it.
2: If you're buying an active fund versus an index, you're buying it, there's a little bit of ego involved. I'm looking to outperform. There's a little bit of FOMO and greed there. Passive is just, I want to own everything and let, let I'm investing in the world. And as Planet Earth does better, uh, economically anyway, I'll I'll participate in it in stocks, bonds, real estate, whatever. It's a very different headspace than I believe I have the ability to either pick the guy that's going to outperform or pick the guy that picks the guys
3: that outperform. Also, I uh, I have a chapter on looking at all the ways Bogle had to sort of explain that indexing wasn't quote average because he had to sort of sell a concept that's un-American. It is. Average is not, we're America, right? We want number one, yeah, Top Gun, whatever. Like, you know, indexing seems like middle of the road and almost like Marxist, as you said. So I think one of the ways he did that was to look at the long-term compounding effect of indexing, but also just explain that, you know, what are we doing here? We're investing in companies that everybody goes to work every day, creates value. There's cash flow there. There's dividends. That's what you're buying, right? And over the decades, that investment return's pretty stable. It's the speculative return that c- can be a smokescreen, but that's just you know people re- making the P go up a lot, and then there's a crash, and then up. But investment returns have been pretty stable throughout the decades, and you just try to get people to understand that that's all we're doing here, and also the idea of the zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. I think some people think of the stock market like, they don't really view it as people in a circle trading.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's not, it, once you view a it- A poker table. Yes, once you view it as a table, you realize, oh, yeah, well, half the people will win, but after cost, only like two win. Or, you know, you start to really latch on to this after concept. After the house takes yes its cut, exactly. But this was part of the challenge of what Bogle had. That's why it took a long time, I think, also, was that he had to really explain some of these concepts and also, again, show compounding. Compounding is such a powerful concept. And if you compound at 7% versus 5 in 50 Huge. years, the gap is enormous. And I think some people don't look at a percent were bips as a big deal. Right. Because they also write they don't write checks. Well for in those a bull mark comes care, out know, of their assets.
2: In twenty twenty one when the market's up twenty eight percent, who cares about ten or twenty yeah. bips? It's irrelevant. All right, last question before we get to our favorites, which circles back to what with Jack Bogle and ETFs and mutual funds. When we look at ETFs today, they're super efficient, they're super cost effective, and and perhaps most important of all the tax advantages of an ETF vastly just destroy mutual funds. So the question is, if if the mutual fund was introduced as a new product today, would that pass SEC muster versus the dominant ETF with its tax efficiency?
3: Good question. Um, I, I assume if it just checked the regulatory boxes, it could come out. And, uh, but I just—we have this product, it and make by sense. the way,
2: if somebody sells, uh, I, I would—the tax problem goes to the other shareholders who didn't sell.
3: Yeah, that's the thing. I almost feel like ETFs are the way it should be done. You yeah. sell, you pay. Mutual right. funds, where you're sitting there as a good soldier, by the way, and you get a tax bill because somebody else sold. It's. Unf- I almost feel bad for mutual funds. <laughs> this is just a bad break because. It's not. It's just not fair. It's, it's a
2: legacy that they're stuck with from the government. The 30s. Almost
3: should like. I'm surprised the ICI hasn't lobbied the government to remove that and put them on a level playing field with ETFs because they might do a little better. But I also think mutual funds generally, you know, a lot of their costs are internalized. ETF externalize a lot of costs. Mm-hmm. You know, you trade on your own, you buy it on your own, your tax bills on your own, and people like that. It's much more of a fair deal. I think mm-hmm. people think. So I think mutual funds. There's possible some spaces. It might make sense. Um, maybe some less liquid spaces Uh, an active mutual fund still has some value Uh, fixed income they do pretty well Um, but I think overall if a mutual fund came out today I think it would be something akin to like a compact disc coming out today like if you invented CDs right now and said oh take this disc go stick it into your computer or your TV and watch this movie it'd be like why would I do that (laughs) so I I do think look every industry is evolving you know I compare the ETF and the index fund to the MP3 just like music. The MP3 really changed that industry. Uber completely revolutionized the taxi industry. And some of these industries are caught a little flat-footed. There's nothing... This is the the story, I think. It's not just the mutual funds. It's a business story. It's a story about disruption. Um, And I think if you're... And also, it's a story about patience. One of the people I interviewed was was Brad Kutsuyama of IEX, Mm -hmm. the Flash Boys guy. And I was like, when I told him it took. Vanguard 25 years to get the 10% market share. He's like, You just made my day. Because <laughs> he's also sort of an out of operating, out of the sure. system guy. So Same I concept. try to tell people this book, whether you're crypto or you're building a business, I, I think a lot of people can learn from some of these guys, some of what this guy did, how he did it, and maybe find some comfort in how long it took. And then when it finally kicked in, how much change it actually forced.
4: Huh.
2: All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, hey, what's been keeping you entertained during uh, the pandemic? Give us your favorite Netflix, Amazon Prime podcast, whatever.
3: Um, I mean, my I have an 11-year-old son, so we've really enjoyed Stranger Things. That's probably an obvious answer. Another thing we do is I, I'll go to Google. He likes scary kind of stuff, right? So mm-hmm. I'll go PG-13 scary. And we'll just go through these movies I never heard of. Like right now we're watching Escape Room and Escape Room 2. <laughs> and he loves them. And they're good enough for me that I can f- – like, you know, at, when he was young, he would want to watch Pixar movies. And they're like a little dull for an adult. But now really? we're getting I, to – I love uh, Pixar. Some, I don't know. I'm not – I wasn't – I mean, Cars is okay. But like now that he's – you know, we both, I think, equally enjoy Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Some of these movies that we – some are better than others. But that's sort of where I've been – I, I'm probably a bad person to ask. I did see the 13 lives in, on Amazon Prime about the cave rescue in Thailand, uh-huh. Ron Howard movie. Oh, that
2: came out fairly recently, yeah, right? Yeah, it was pretty
3: good. I, Colin Farrell's in it. I He's so underrated. Everything he's in is pretty good. So sometimes I'll do that. I'll take an actor like Colin Farrell or Bill Pullman, like somebody you don't really think about. And I'll just put their name into Amazon Prime and i'll just start going through some of their work that i haven't heard of because if you just go to amazon prime or netflix now you end up scrolling forever uh, forever so you need a search term and so a lot of times if you go to google and put in pg13 scary or something specific what i really want them to have is a netflix are funny i want the rotten tomatoes people to team up with netflix so i can go okay i want a thriller plus thriller that's 90 plus critic 70 audience where I want a comedy that's fifty critic, ninety audience, <laughs> and I want to set these parameters so that's I can great. totally pinpoint what I want. I cannot believe that hasn't happened yet.
2: Netflix, go buy, uh, go buy Rotten Tomatoes, so Eric and I can find better <laughs> films. Second question: Tell us about your mentors who helped to shape your career.
3: Hmm. I mean, I never had one real mentor. I guess you know. Index uh, in it, it, uh, institutional investor Tom Lamont ran the show there, and he was sort of this gruff old editor guy, and mm-hmm. he was really about fact checking, checking everything thirteen times, and it hurt, but that was a, a good lesson. By the way, um, I
2: have yet to interview a journalist who, on the mentor question, pretty much the exact. He was old school. He was a gruff, no BS guy, <laughs> and you know, yeah. and now I realize how useful it was.
3: I've heard he that also, over and over. The again. first meeting at that company tom lamont is sitting there and you remember al damato was senator at the time sure yeah he's like listen you got to get to work early you got to get there before the gatekeepers and the secretaries show up that's what they called them back then assistance is the word now he's like you get there at 7 a.m you call al damato you're gonna hear damato at 8 30 you're gonna hear al damato's office how can i help you (laughs) oh yeah sure whatever click (laughs) so he he also had this like just you know use the phone pick up the phone call the people go to the thing um, and I thought that was uh, he was a good mentor. My, I I'll say my dad as well. My dad was a highway or is a where he retired, but he would go around and try to get contracts to pave highways. Mm-hmm. So he'd go to like the New Jersey Transportation, and I saw him present a couple times, and it was I, I liked his style. He would present on like hot mix, <laughs> boring topic, right? Like like mutual funds, mm-hmm. but he would have them rolling. Like he would he would. He'd have a little some little dry jokes here and there. You could tell he, he curated this and took this yeah. doesn't have to suck, <laughs> right? And that's and that's what I thought with Dave and Matt and my first inside ETF conference. This doesn't have to suck. These guys had a lot of fun up there with sure. their PowerPoint. And I find that with you guys, this stuff can actually be fun, interesting and I really try to apply that to my world. It doesn't have to be boring and stayed and just blah, dull, let's fall asleep. So I think uh, I'd, I'd say those two people the, for now. The idea coming out of
2: COVID of doing a, a conference in a hotel room conference center or, or heaven forbid the Javits Center, it's why we teed up future proof on the beach in in california like i've been locked in the house for 2 years i don't want to sit in a hotel room let me out in the sunshine so yeah absolutely the idea that anything that might be a little dry you got to make punch it up and make it interesting
3: yeah and especially the the younger generation zero tolerance for they have for zero nonsense. tolerance for bullet points on a power you got to right. show me a picture that's funny and then explain to me you know the data behind it like, that's the, it's, it's you're, you're our team really pays attention to this. We think it's very important. Otherwise, you're going to just fade into oblivion.
2: Right, you're just going to torture people. Everybody's favorite question, what are some of your favorite books, and
3: what are you reading right now? Um, For some reason, the book that keeps coming to mind, I've read it twice now, is Bob Dylan's Chronicles. Really? Yeah. He only wrote one book, but I got into Bob Dylan late, but I really got into him, and I find him he's fascinating. He's still alive. It took mm-hmm. my mom to see him. Can't can't understand a word he's saying, singing, but I never could. But you realize this guy influenced the Beatles. The Beatles, the Beatles, the The Rolling Stones. Would have been. I want to hold your hand if it wasn't for Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix worshipped. I mean, this dude is like a walking Smithsonian Institute, right? Mm -hmm. So, I was like, I got to read his book. His book is fascinating because it's he writes about his childhood up until 1963 and 60 to 63. He's sort of just like sleeping on couches in Manhattan, but he's starting to read books on people's shelves and he's starting to go into to art exhibits, and he's taking the books and the art, and then he's taking his Woody Guthrie love, and he's merging it all together. And and the you really get an idea for how creativity happens in his books. And then when 63 happens, he has the big album. The book stops. And then it starts again in 1980, when he's in a slump. And he tries to figure out, like, he's lost, and it goes in how he found his groove again, and his inspiration. so. I, I find that to be so Bob Dylan. None of the book is about his popularity, the big albums he wrote, nothing. It's all about finding the spark, finding the creativity, putting together different things together in a stew and how to do that. And for anybody who writes or does anything creative, it's a, it's just a fascinating read. And clearly this guy was ahead of his time and a very interesting figure. So I would recommend that to anybody. Huh. Um,
2: Chronicles.
3: Bob yeah, and Dylan. I'm a Gen Xer. I wasn't I didn't grow up with Bob Dylan, but I I can't sometimes I can't believe how good his like his albums are when he he, well, he wrote when he was 21, 22. I'm like his way beyond his years. It's really it's interesting is Scorsese did a documentary called um uh, No Direction Home. Mhm. That's also very good.
2: Give us one more book, so Chronicles by Bob Dylan. And um let's see.
3: Uh oh. <laughs> Here's another one. You want a music one or a, a different one? Doesn't matter. Whatever you read um, I I just got this book that Hunter Horsley of Bitwise recommended to me. I got it because I sent it to my dad. I knew my dad would love this. It's Winston Churchill, and it's a book of all his takes on different figures. So it's like all his notes and writings on all these different figures in history, FDR, Charlie Chaplin, Hitler... And I find Churchill kind of fascinating. My dad's really in love with him. So I sent my dad the book. I got the book. And so now I'm reading that. Churchill's also interesting because he wrote... What's the name of the book? Winston Great contemporaries. Oh, what an interesting... My dad, who's read almost everything about him and by him, never heard of it. Really? So if anybody's a fan of Churchill at all, I took... Wait,
2: this is a five-part Winston Churchill reflects on FDR, Hitler, Kipling... Book three of five. How, how many of these books are there?
3: Um, I'm not sure. I just downloaded the one. There might be three sections. It might, I think it's all in the one book, though. Oh, okay. I think it's just in three sections. But um, you know, he definitely he wrote all the time. It seems like so. Yeah, he's got a ton of books out. And I'm not. I can't say I'm a, a huge expert on that era. So I kind of like. That? To, Let me see what that cover looks like.
2: Winston Churchill. Yeah, I'm looking at great contemporaries. Yeah. Notice, it says Book Three of Five and, and other works. How so. many stars
3: does it have? Like, or how many? No, how many? Ninety-four people? ratings, four and a half stars. Isn't it interesting? Ninety-four. is Nobody, not that much. And it's actually him, not a. Uh, and it's his words. That's I found that interesting. So anyway, hat tip to Hunter Hunter Horsley who recommended that to me and and then when I told my dad, he's like, yeah, I never heard of it. I'm like, that seems weird to me, given how much he loves that guy.
2: Really interesting. And and our last two questions that we ask all of our guests. The first is, what sort of advice would you give to a college grad who is interested in a career in either investment and in finance, or journalism, or research and analysis?
3: Um, you know, I would I would get out there and do it. You know, uh, write for the school paper, go intern somewhere. I, that's how I. You know, I I did not get a CFA, although I would recommend that too. I if I could go back, I might take at least CFA one. Because sometimes, sometimes I would be, I would find things that were logical and James would be like, oh yeah, that's in the CFA. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I I definitely would recommend though, getting out and doing it and, and being as social as possible. I think, you know, uh, being able to work with people, uh, being likable, it, and also it can it help with your longevity. Because mm-hmm. you don't burn bridges, you, you end up getting into an industry. And like the ETF industry is great. I feel like it's a scene and I I would encourage getting into a scene.
2: Interesting, and our final question, what do you know about the world of ETFs, mutual funds, financial
3: journalism today you wish you knew 25 years ago? I I guess I would go with compounding. Um, When I was in my 20s, I withdrew a lot of my 401k because I just wanted money to hang out with and spend So I actually took money out of my 401k to get idiot. Right. And I I just, I didn't know that much about it. and I wish, compounding is probably the single most important word in investing, in my opinion. Compounding also, I think, sort of, it shows you the end, which helps you in the now. And it helps you just relax. Because it just like, you know, let let it grow. It's like watching a tree grow. It's not like uh, running or do, you just, the action. It it helps you take less action. I think compounding is something I would immediately learn about, whether it's compound interest or the investing. I think that that term is... Uh, really powerful? I mean, I don't, that's not a great answer, but I it's can't say I knew answer. a lot about that.
2: It's it's a pretty good answer. We have been speaking with Eric Balchunas. He is the senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg and author of The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 400 or so episodes we've done over the past, uh, is it eight years? Wow, that's kind of crazy. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week, Juan Torres is my audio engineer, Atika Valbrun is my project manager, Sean Russo is my head of research, Paris Wald is my producer, I'm Barry Ritholtz, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.